This is episode 176 of Alohomora for February 6th, 2016. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another fascinating episode of Alohomora. I'm Eric Skull. I'm Megan Kelly. And I'm Allison Sigurd. And our guest this week is Meredith. Welcome, Meredith. Thank you, guys. Hey, Meredith's here. Hi. Yay! <laughs> I'm very, very excited to be here. Um, I am a Hufflepuff, officially, on Pottermore. Um, yes. Always thought I was going to be a Ravenclaw, but per the norm, read the Hufflepuff letter and felt immediately connected to it and has since embraced it. Um, mm-hmm. Funny story, my sister and I recently went to Wizarding World uh, to celebrate her birthday, and she is a Slytherin. So we, wa- we walked around with Hufflepuff and Slytherin t-shirts and got lots of comments about how we really... They're like, wow, that's a combo we've never seen before. <laughs> Do you know, I think you'll appreciate this, me and my girlfriend are Hufflepuff and Slytherin, and we are not the only couple that we know that are really? Hufflepuff and Slytherin. Yes. That's a good so, one. At first, I was going to suggest, oh, did you just not hang with your sister at all? <laughs> we just parted ways. We didn't see each other the then whole time. Then I was time. like, wait a minute, that doesn't make any That's not good. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I um, have lots of Slytherin friends. Slytherins <laughs> make good friends. I think they, they abuse you. I think they're using you, Allison. <laughs> um, Megan, have you, uh, I wanted to ask, have you been on this show before? I have not. Okay, so Megan hosts uh, MuggleNet's brand new Harry Potter podcast, Speak Beastie. Yes. Which is fabulous, and you should all be listening to if you're not already. Oh, thanks. It's fun. (laughs) We like it. (laughs) And um, uh, I guess, well, just take a minute. Tell us about uh, Speak Beastie. Um, Well, we're about four episodes in now. Um, There's a nice little group of us, and we discuss Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, the upcoming film series. Um, Mm -hmm. We kind of dissect the book. We talk about which beasts we think are going to be in the movie and what we're hoping to see from them. Um, we look at the trailers and the new photos that come out, just all kinds of excitement, basically. I have to say, I'm super excited to start listening myself. I know I'm a little behind, but I was uh, privy to some of the planning, and it just looks like a real fun time, a real cool show. So uh, for those Alohomora listeners who are not currently uh, listening to Speak Beastie, go and do that. <laughs> yes, please. And check out Megan over there. But in the meantime, we have Megan and Meredith with us here today. Um, Kat and Michael uh, had to step off and do other things. So they will be back in due course, but not not this episode. <laughs> and funny you should bring up the Wizarding World, Meredith, because Megan and I were just there. Yes. And actually, if you have our app content, guys, it was my first time. And I think one of the videos coming up is going to be... The video oh. of the first time I stepped into Diagon Alley, because we recorded specially for that. Kristen and was, Kat and I had some fun, so. Oh. It was my first time, too, and it was unbelievable. It's the, phenomenal. I'm when you say gonna... you, you had some fun, do you mean you had some tears? Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, there were definitely tears, and Kristen and Kat and I also did some other fun things to bring app content to all of our listeners, so it was it was great. It was awesome. <laughs> I'm not over it yet. Yeah, Still. no. <laughs> it stays with you for like a while after. Yes. <laughs> what was your favorite part? I loved just doing the magic. I loved walking around with my wand. Um, it was my second time there. So I went back in March and my sister is also a, a diehard fan and she couldn't go that time. 
So the mm-hmm. whole time I was there, I just kept thinking about how badly I wish she was there to experience this with me. Um, right. So for her birthday, I took her back, and it was it was just so great to have her have a wand and me have a wand. We just ran around and did magic the whole time, drank butter beer, and we just sat in the Hogsmeade and ate Birdie Bots every flavor beans and watched people doing magic, and it just felt like a real place. You know, it yeah. wasn't like, oh, we're yeah. in a theme park, and this is just That's a fun trip. It's like, no, this is, I'm a wizard. You know, they do I'm just an here. amazing <laughs> job of making you feel like you're really there. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. And the music doesn't hurt at all. No. The music is <laughs> They pick the most immersive, like, it's just like, ah. Uh, it's it's perfect. Everything about it is perfect. Yeah. Let's go back. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Team trip right now. Yes. <laughs> oh, come on, guys. We can't go back. We have a book to discuss. Yes, we do. So instead of going to Orlando, we're actually going to pop into Chapter 25 of Deathly Hallows' Shell Cottage. Um, but before we jump into Shell Cottage, we have some really great comments from last week's episode that we want to touch on. Uh, chapter 24 was last week. Um, so Eileen Prince slash Jones writes, the thing that struck me the most in this chapter is that Harry finally masters legilimency while grieving for Dobby. When Snape was trying to teach Harry the skill back in HBP, he said that he had to empty himself of all feelings. So I thought it was strange that for Harry, he had to use that emotion to master it. I was thinking about it. And I think that's because if Harry emptied himself of all feeling, he still has access to Voldy's feelings through the Horcrux connection. He can never truly be empty of feeling while he has a piece of Voldy's soul in him. There's always going to be this noise in the background, almost like a radio station that you can't quite dial in on. You can hear what's being broadcasted, but there's constant static. He has to use love or grief, which I think is an extension of love, to keep Voldy out of his head, because that is the only feeling that Voldy can't feel and also doesn't understand. This effectively allows Harry to shut him out of his own mind. It's shown in Order of the Phoenix that love repulses Voldy, so maybe the part of Voldy's soul in Harry gets knocked out for a while when Harry is feeling love. Hmm. I like that image this, of the radio yeah. station dial. <laughs> yeah. I I like this idea because I it makes me wonder then um, if Snape telling Harry that to use occulency, he needs to not have feeling, He that it, Snape doesn't do that himself. That may be... As much as I don't don't agree with Snape and Lily's pairing, um, <laughs> I there's still that grief that he feels over that, and maybe the guilt is what helps him control his uh, occupancy. Ooh, uh, I think that they are different. I think that what Harry's doing here is not so much legitimacy. Uh, like I reject the premise. I think that what it is is shutting Voldemort out, and I think in the text it is stated that just like. Um, when he tries to possess him and can't in order the Phoenix, love is keeping him out. I completely agree, but I don't think Harry's performing legitimacy. Legitimacy is what Snape was doing. Well, uh, yeah, with, but occlumency is the opposite. Or I, I must have mean to be saying occlumency all of this time. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, because it's not, it's not occlumency what Harry is doing. It, it is shutting Voldemort out, but Voldemort, he's basically just, he figured out how to put a stopper on the connection between them. He's he's found a way to tolerate Voldemort's intense feelings and and make them um, less powerful, so that he can focus on the tasks at hand. I almost think you know to use the radio analogy, occlumency would be um, you know turning off the radio and, and just blocking it completely. And I think what he's doing, I agree with you, Eric. I think what he's doing is just tuning to a different station, so it's it's drowning out huh. whatever's in the background. Like he's he's I think he's making himself. 
like purposefully less receptive to it. Like he is, he's changing the station. That's a really good analogy. Yeah. And I, I kind of think it's important in that scene that he's making that choice. It's a, like Mm, an important distinction between him and Voldemort. Yeah, that's true. Um, so our next comment is from Puffin Proud who writes about the elder wand sparking when Voldemort took possession of it. At first I thought that the wand was rebelling a bit at being handled by Voldemort at this point, Harry is its true master as the host mentioned. Then I thought it is more likely that the wand is excited to have Voldemort use it. Since the wand has essentially been bred to seek power, mostly through violence, the Elder Wand probably thought it found its soulmate. It would be awful to imagine the truly extraordinary magic it could have performed if Voldemort had in fact mastered the Elder Wand. Agreed. Um, Interesting. I get, I get that impression while reading it too, that it sparked not out of rejection, but it's just like, ooh, human contact. Like, you know. I like the idea of the wand as like a sentient being that's like, ooh, what's this guy about? I, I don't Friends. really think of them that way, but it's true. I mean, if there's ever a time in the books to think of them that way, it's like these couple chapters. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, yeah <laughs> um, for sure. Like it was that wand was probably just bored <laughs> in the tomb, not being used. And I think I think that ex- is exactly right. What Puffin Proud said, like it's been bred to um, respond to power and and to be used in that way. So it's it's almost as though it like its purpose was negated all of this time, and it's so the sparks are probably maybe it's static from Dumbledore's gown. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with static, it goes back to the idea still of like this point we've been debating for the past several episodes of how do wand masters like how is that all working and so i mean yeah that's that's still the big question i think is how do true masters of wands work and how do they not work if someone else is using it it's almost yeah. like the power that he, that the, he, the wand feels when Voldemort takes it almost overrides, not completely, um, but overrides the fact that it knows its allegiance is not to Voldemort. Mm-hmm. So yeah. those two things are in conflict. And in this case, I think because of the proximity of Voldemort and the power that he feels, it, it outweighs it a little bit. Um, but when Harry does take possession of it, it's like, okay, well, you know, this is my true owner and it was fun while it lasted, Voldy, but... You know, this is where my allegiance is. Voldy, you're just not my type. (laughs) It worked for a while. It was fun for one night, but I'm moving on. (laughs) All right. Um, The next comment comes from, who do you know who's lost a buttock? Which I (sighs) like. I like your username. (laughs) (laughs) I enjoyed the observation on Voldemort's childish view of so much of the magical world, but I think one of the points that got missed about his desire for a Gringotts vault was Voldemort's hypocrisy, which is so important to his character. One of the hosts asked why he would want a Gringotts vault since it's goblin-controlled. If you think the way Voldemort does, that's irrelevant. What he cares about is the status, the belonging, the weight a Gringotts vault would have for him. But the point about the goblins is valid, just misinterpreted. With all of his pure-blood mania, sure, Voldemort should be anti-Gringotts, but isn't that the point of all of this? He himself is not pure-blood. Clear Hitler echoes here, people, loud and clear. The very essence of his philosophy is a lie and a contradiction, which proves that Voldemort's ideals have never truly been about societal ideals, but about gaining power for himself. He may find goblins distasteful, but the craving for the status of a vault overpowers that distaste, and he brushes the hypocrisy of that action aside. 
It's part of Joe's larger point about how tyrants often don't actually support the ideals they espouse. They're so often a smokescreen, a hypocritical one at that, to simply mask the hunger for power and the willingness to do anything to get it. Hmm. But again, it's brilliant that in all of this, Voldemort slash Tom Riddle never gets his own Gringotts vault. Maybe he never had enough money. Maybe, deep down, he knew that if he got his own vault, he'd always be a first-generation wizard, since he doesn't own up to his heritage on his mother's side. And I always got the impression that the Gaunts kept their gold in their mattress, what little of it they had. Uh, True. He's low-level. He'd have basic security at best. Getting his own vault would underline his own basic lack of importance, and he could not, would not, accept or face that. So he gets around it by allying himself with a powerful old wizarding family who will let him put things in in the Lestrange vault. And problem solved. Hypocrisy? The fact that it's an empty victory because he does not have a vault of his own. Because he's simply riding the coattails of others to make himself feel important. Doesn't register. It's brushed aside. Same deal with the Horcrux in Hogwarts. He's convinced that he's the only one who has found the room of requirement, but is so laughably wrong. He wants a job at Hogwarts, but not really. He wants to be part of Hogwarts, but not really. It's the hypocrisy of the tyrant, and it brings them to their knees every time. Wow. So a lot to think about. (laughs) What a thorough and multifaceted uh, good points all. Yeah. 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 Um. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I I think we kind of see just I mean I'm just going to break this down start breaking this down a little bit but I think they're right about that it's irrelevant that goblins run Gringotts. I mean Voldemort doesn't care once he takes over he puts wizards in charge of Gringotts. I mean um we're going to see that soon that goblins are no longer in control but the wizards have kind of taken it over the ministry has kind of taken it over so i mean there's his the kind of like pure blood mania running into that um but yeah i think definitely irrelevant to him he doesn't care he just wants what that means he wants the sentiment that goes behind that yeah he's all about status symbols i mean look at his horcruxes and what he chooses to make them out of it doesn't matter where they can't like doesn't matter logically that that makes no sense to have those as your horcruxes um it's the status of it and i think the gringotts vault is representative of that as well he wants the status of having that vault um even though it doesn't really make much logical sense as the comment outline yeah yeah no i i I actually hadn't thought about um the gaunts in the way that they're illustrated here which makes sense because despite them being an old wizarding family like presumably harry had they weren't the same type of people it's like the weasleys they're an old wizarding family, but they're not the type that Voldemort cares about or wants to be like. Exactly. I I like the idea, though, of um, him knowing that he wouldn't get one of the, like, secret high security vaults because <laughs> if he got one himself, so he he just kind of takes over the Lestranges and just is like, put all my stuff in the real big ones. <laughs> and you know Belichick says, like, absolutely, of course, no problem. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks again to everybody who submitted comments. Uh, and now we're going to read some podcast question of the week responses uh, from last week's podcast question of the week. Let's give you a refresher for what that question was. In this chapter, Harry reflects on his first encounter with Ollivander, noting that he had been unsure when they first met of how much he liked Ollivander. Even now, having been tortured and imprisoned by Voldemort, the idea of the dark wizard in possession of this wand seemed to enthrall him as much as it repulsed him. This impression of Ollivander was poised to be recalled since his first appearance in Sorcerer's Philosopher's Stone. Why is this aspect of his character recalled in this moment? What is the significance of this to Ollivander's character and to Harry's 
journey? So you got a lot of good responses. It was actually a really good question, Great question. Uh, from mm-hmm. last week. And the first is an abridged comment. I abridged it. Uh, abridged. From feet. Abridged. I abridged it. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it was abridged too English far. teaching major. <laughs> Thank you. I'm supposed to be one of those. Uh, Felix Commander says, I think that this is just a reminder of his knowledge and devotion to his craft. Ollivander's awe doesn't take sides, even when he has been tortured to a disgusting extent by the warlock in question. So here's a further comment from Dornympha. Clearly, Ollivander is on Harry's side. He's not a fan of Voldemort, but he is first and foremost a wand maker, and he's a Ravenclaw, so of course he'll consider the idea of Voldemort in possession of the Elder Wand as an academic. Kind of like how when Slughorn is asked about Horcruxes, and he entertains the idea of theorizing a hypothetical uh, conversations quite enthusiastically. They're discussing as something as they're discussing something as vile as soul splitting by murder, but he's quite happy to theorize as an academic, and it's fine. I really don't think there's any reason to doubt Ollivander. Not that Harry doubts his allegiance just is kind of not sure how much he likes him, because I really don't think there's anything wrong with toying with ideas. You also have to detach yourself from sentimentality to consider some theory anyway. Otherwise, scientists would be crying into petri dishes from the thought of what the viruses they're examining can do and how many people die from them. Yeah, I think that's a a really valid point. Um, And I also think it kind of highlights some of the differences between, between people. I mean people like Ollivander can take things very thought-based, whereas people like Harry take things more emotions-based. And so because Ollivander's not necessarily emotionally invested, I mean, he's he's part of this now, but he this isn't like his emotional investment isn't in like this struggle between Voldemort and Harry. Right. Um, I think that's a really great, really great way to say it is that he's just looking at this very objectively and, mm that's why. Yeah. I mean, if you think of it from his perspective as an academic, he's been studying wand lore. And here you have this situation where this wizard is taking wand lore and magic farther than it's ever gone. So it'd be really hard not to be interested in that, despite the (laughs) fact that this wizard is terrible and has tortured you and everyone you know. There's some part of that that's going to be like, wow, this is so interesting. Yeah, I've always thought of Ollivander in the terms of an academic, specifically like a scientist or a chemist even, um, because he's looking, I, I, I go back to the scene where he's giving her his wand and he's looking for a reaction, like he's pairing up different combinations of ingredients almost with, you know, the core, the wood, the wizard himself, and waiting for the reaction that he's looking for. So in that sense, he's very scientific about what he does. And I think the scientific mind in him is just you know, giddy at the thought of the reaction that would occur with Voldemort and the Elder Wand. Here's further coloring from Arthur Dent on this hot-button topic. Uh, For me, Ollivander resembles the scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project. He is so focused on the new knowledge and understanding of wand lore that the ultimate wand-slash-wizard combination could provide uh, that he doesn't think of the consequences. So this is a, a more negative sort of Oppenheimer type portrayal of Ollivander suggesting that perhaps he would like to see, um, or, or would be the cause of, um, 
this this occurring. And actually, in a way, it's fair because Ollivander is the cause of Voldemort getting the Elder Wand, I think. He, he really s- starts him on that journey um, by sending him to Grindel- uh, not Grindelwald, uh, um, um, Grigorovich first. So the idea that, and again, Oppenheimer regretted the decision later, I know this from history, but you know, it's these kinds of guys, these academics, aren't incapable of causing great disaster. Um, so should we, do you think we should not like Ollivander? Is that what Joe is getting at? Hmm. I don't think so. I don't think you should dislike him. I have a question, though. You had said, you know, Ollivander led him to Gregorich, and I might just be forgetting. But do we know, because um, Voldemort asks him about it, right? So where does Voldemort get that from? And how? Because it, it wouldn't be this tale of the three brothers, because then he would know about all three. Mm-hmm. History. So do we I think, know? Just I think it's just history. Um, Hermione makes it clear that legends of wands like this have come down okay, through history. Yeah. So I'm sure. I mean, big surprise. Voldy probably paid attention in history of magic. What? <laughs> <laughs> I bet Voldemort would. He so would. Yeah. Um. I bet. I bet he like. Uh, what's the word? Greased up Mr. Bins, <laughs> like <laughs> Professor Bins, and was like, hello, Professor. Yeah, Teacher's I'm pet. sure Ugh, Slughorn wasn't the only teacher he ever did that to. Yeah. yeah. You no, know, but I, I, I do think um, it probably came from, right, because Voldemort wanted to try the different... He, he, It's actually laid out in the chapter. Like, he first tried just any other wand when he got yeah. Lucius Malfoy's, and when that didn't work, he then pressed... Ollivander for a solution, and I think the solution that came to him was was this one. Yeah. Okay. So that that's what it is because he wanted he was trying to get the the connection not to matter anymore, um, so much. But uh, anyway, our our final uh, response that we're going to read is also coming from um, the very verbose but articulate. Uh, who do you know who's lost a buttock? Who chimes in? Ollivander makes Harry uncomfortable because Ollivander allies himself with wands, wand lore, their history, and creation. He does not ally himself with the acts committed by the wands, either good or bad. In a sense, then, Ollivander is a representation of power itself and a reminder of the nebulous nature of it. This is perfect timing for Harry to recall this, since he is now in a delicate situation, hallows or horcruxes. He's made his decision to pursue the Horcruxes, but Harry has been and will continue to be forced to come face-to-face with his own views on power and how much he's willing to give for power. Ollivander is the perfect reminder of that struggle right here at this moment. Harry is reminded that, yes, power is enticing, fascinating, magnetic, but it has a dark side, and for somebody like Harry, not acknowledging that is dangerous in itself. He's not okay with that kind of moral relativism. But as someone who is going to be the master of the Hallows by the end of the book, who will have to make some decisions regarding how to use them, and who will have to face his own views of Dumbledore once he understands Dumbledore's own struggle with the Hallows, he needs to face up to his moment of discomfort right now. It is a key reminder both for Harry and the reader. Wow. (laughs) Are those really smart guys? Is this person J.K. Rowling? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, probably, based on the username. Yeah, right. Um, Although I often feel that way about our usernames. This this is a great answer because it addresses that part of the question of why is this being brought up now, and I think it does it very eloquently. I have nothing to add to it. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. 
Um, yep. It kind of just ties that up in a nice little bow. Stamp of approval. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that wraps up our podcast question of the week recap. Be sure to... Um, be sure to respond to that if you have any additional thoughts or next week's podcast question leak, which we will read at the end of the show. And before we go on to our chapter, we just want to throw out a reminder about our Patreon and let you guys know that this episode is sponsored by Andrew Hill on Patreon. Thank you, Andrew Hill. Thank you so much. And you too, listener can become a sponsor of us for as little as a dollar a month. And just so you know, our post hallow plans have been decided on. And our Patreon sponsors will get to know weeks before everyone else. So head on over to our website, alohomora.mugglenet.com, and hit on our Patreon button, and you can go ahead and sponsor us there. And thank you to all who sponsor us through Patreon. Yes, thank you so much. And now we'll move on to our chapter discussion of Chapter 25. Ooh. Yay. (laughs) Chapter 25. Shell Cottage. It's a good chapter. There is a lot in this chapter. There is. It's a lot of kind of subtle stuff is going on. Yeah. The summary for this chapter. In a few moments of peace in the aftermath of Malfoy Manor and Ollivander's information, Harry contemplates his sudden decision between Howells and Horcruxes. The trio makes a deal that satisfies no one to break into the Lestrange's Gringotts vault in search of the next piece of Voldemort's soul. But Bill's advice on goblins puts a slight damper on the announcement of Teddy Lupin's birth, leaving Harry wondering whether he is headed for the same fate as Sirius, his own godfather. Big chapter. That was (laughs) nice. That was really... Yeah, you wouldn't know it. It masquerades as like this done in 30 minutes quick, like, reprieve from Mm -hmm. action. I mean, because they're planning the break-in, but you don't really see that. Yeah. And then before you know it, there's wine being passed around. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but there's there's actually a lot to it. I think you're right to point that out. And of course, you found everything there is to point out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, one of the first things I noticed as I was going through is, oh, gosh, I'm going to talk about this the whole book. But this chapter is another one of these chapters that it's some of JKR's most beautiful writing. I mean, the first couple pages of this chapter are just gorgeous and heartfelt and just the language alone. I'm going to be a little nerd here, but (laughs) it's so, so beautiful. So, I mean, if you read the chapter, but then go back and read those first couple pages because it's beautiful. I just, oh, I'd forgotten how wonderful it was. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I think it sets the scene too a little bit for, you know, the joy later in the, in the chapter. Um, I mean that, that, well, I mean, we'll get there, but I think that announcement later in the chapter is, is a little bit jarring given what's going on around them. But the fact that it happens in this beautiful, kind of serene, peaceful setting makes it a little bit, um, a little more digestible. Definitely. I, I would actually really agree with that. Um, and there is, a, of course, a, a passage of time, I think weeks uh, throughout this chapter, but you just kind of get the sense that, well, they're, they're among family and friends for the first time too. So there's this opportunity to see what everyone else is doing. Like the little moments between Harry and Fleur or Bill and Fleur in the background in this chapter were some of my favorites to read. Yeah. Just kind of like, mm-hmm. cause we hadn't seen them and I was just like, what are they up to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Living um, the married life. Also you get a real sense of Bill. This is probably the most we've oh, seen yeah. Bill that I can recall. Yeah. And like seeing him, regard Harry and how he regards Harry throughout this chapter is like 
super important and really cool. And flirt, um, too, and what their marriage is like. Yeah. Because that's yeah. something that we never really get to see, um, uh, except for this chapter. It's kind of funny because... Like Fleur kind of takes on the Mrs. Weasley role, so you kind yeah, of feel like, oh, yeah. they're they're in this peaceful place, they're with family, everything's normal, but it's not. It's a very interesting little um, scene that she sets here. Yeah, they even I think they Harry even says at one point she looked like it was a Mrs. Weasley esque look on her face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I highlighted yeah. that. I was like, oh my god, it's great, especially when you think back to when they were when Fleur was first in the house with everyone and Mrs. Weasley was like not having it. It's just great yeah. that she's picked up on these little things from Mrs. Weasley that she's kind of taken on. It's really cute. Yeah. Well, speaking of that kind of character development, we actually, we start this chapter um, with a really, really interesting look at how the trio has developed lately um, or hasn't in some ways. So mm. the first thing I really picked up on was um, it seems Ron hasn't really learned some things yet that Harry definitely has. Um, for example, they're talking about Dumbledore, um, and if he could have been playing in some of the things back and Harry says, Dumbledore would have gone on, but Ron says, what do you mean gone on? And it's kind of just this flashback all of a sudden to the end of book five. And it's like, oh, Harry learned that years ago. And you almost forget that Ron hasn't learned that yet. Well, and then, like, for me, it took me back to book one, but then it was a conversation between Dumbledore and Harry. Is it Because yeah. Dumbledore is talking about Nicholas Flamel, and he's got that great line, right? Like, to the organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. That, for me, is the perfect line to sum up why Dumbledore wouldn't be a ghost. Oh, yeah. he, he views death oh, yeah. as, as the next step. He's very clear about that. But then again, Ron wasn't part of that conversation. I also yeah. love this this little conversation with Ron because when I read it, it made me think of J.K.R. talking directly to her audience and being like, <laughs> yes, Dumbledore is dead. <laughs> like, because we had all yeah. these theories before the book came out. I just kind of like the way she debunked that within the story. <laughs> I thought that was cool. Definitely. I just wanted to point out, you, you, bring, you bring up um, how Ron isn't quite learning all the same lessons. And I noticed not just that one moment where he says, what do you mean gone on? But I feel like there's, oh, there were four moments in this chapter where he was doing something really immature. Um, and that first one, <laughs> the first one being, what do you mean, Garon? Like, you know, come on, Ron. And then... <laughs> well, Ron, there's this thing called ghosts. Yeah, <laughs> like, come on. And then, it happens when you don't want to do what Dumbledore did. And then secondly, the second moment I saw was when Griphook uh, Grip says, I want the sword. And Ron's like, well, we'll give you something else out of the vault. It's like, oh, oh God. Yeah. He nearly yeah, botched a, the oh. whole operation. Yeah, and then, <laughs> yeah. and then when they're discussing, like, what are we going to do? He's like, oh, we'll just give him the fate. And then Hermione's like, are you ridiculous? And he's like, well, we'll just run off before he notices. It's like, what? Like, well, that is kind of what they end up doing, right? I mean... I mean, they don't try and give him a fake one. Like, that was okay. an awful no, suggestion. But, but I just... I, and I wondered why... why JK did that. And a part of it, I think, is to juxtapose Harry's maturity in this chapter, which I'm sure we'll discuss yeah. at length. But I, it, it almost went too far for me because after the fourth mention where he's like, we'll just run off after we give him a fake sword. I was like, what? So <laughs> I, I, was a little, I was a little bowled over by the immaturity of Ron compared to, especially compared to Harry in this chapter. Well, and I think some of this too could be a little bit, um, 
not backtracking and not like excusing, but offering some explanation for why why we shouldn't be as mad at Ron for kind of running off before. I feel yeah. like she's almost trying to, to rebuild that again and just say, look, like he hasn't quite, he's not, he hasn't learned some of the lessons Harry has learned at this point. And so we can, we can be okay with him now. <laughs> like, that's that's in interesting. Way. Cause I, I was thinking, I was like, it was always consciously in my mind while reading this chapter, the previous one before it, that, Ron saved them by having run here to the first time. This oh, was yeah. a, a place that he knew to go, and they chose this place, which ended up being the right choice for many, many reasons. Um, because they can stage the plan, and they can interview Ollivander and, and Griphook separately, and all, all of those reasons. Like, Ron uh, knew about this place and found this place, and he's the reason they're there, so good going, Ron. But then he almost botches this pl- the plan and he <laughs> says these things and you, you just kind of want to hit him uh, t- at times. Um, so it is very kind of, I, I guess you just have to, as, as a reader, you can be uh, wishy-washy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it didn't hit me so hard the first time I read it. I think the first time I read it, Ron really represented the voice of the reader a little bit, especially because he keeps bringing up Dumbledore not being dead and you just so badly yeah. want to hang on to that. So, you know, as they're going through this discussion with Griphook and Griphook says, I want the sword, you know, as the reader, you're like, oh, my God, we can't give him the sword. What are we going to do? And you're trying to <laughs> you're trying to think of, like, oh, how are we going to get out of this? And Ron voicing that idea of, like, well, we'll just give him the fake one. Like, you know, as the reader, you know, when I was younger reading this the first time, I was like, yeah, oh, my God, brilliant. But now it's <laughs> yeah. like, no, that would, that would never work. So I think Ron does represent kind of what the, the reader's internal monologue might have been the first time they read this through. I agree. And I think that she uses him to give herself the opportunity to explain within the text why yes. those things won't work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think also, too, because at the end of the day, they're just going to kind of barge in and hope for the best. Yeah. Uh, at, at least now it's nice to believe that there could be an alternative plan or that there could be something they're trying to accomplish. Yeah, they plan, they get there, all hell breaks loose. <laughs> yeah, but that's, that was always bound to happen. So like this idea that, oh, worst case scenario, there is a copy of the sword. You know, it's like they have some options, so it's a little bit better. They're in a better situation planning for the break-in of Gringotts, a much better situation than they were with the Ministry. Definitely. And so I think one of the things I had in this chapter uh, was, like, basically confidence that it would go off without a hitch. Ex- except to say that there is this personal interaction between Harry and, and Griphook, or Griphook and the children, that it sort of deteriorates, um, as Allison pointed out in her summary. So that, like, it's it, it might not work, but not because it's Gringotts, the safest place in the world. The reason why, it, well, except Hogwarts, the reason why it won't work is because you actually probably can't trust a goblin. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, moving on to another member of the trio, Hermione has had to backtrack a little bit on her previous skepticism about the Elder Wand. That's which, a beautiful paragraph. Yeah, it's... It's it's so interesting to me that Hermione's knowledge and kind of the the thing they've relied on her so much is JKR shows us the flaws in that yeah. in this chapter um and the fact that Hermione has to admit she was wrong which I can't remember a time previous that she's had to do that really well, yeah. What it seems to be is that Ollivander in the previous chapter has ad- has admitted that he believes the death stick is a thing. Yeah. And so now all of a sudden she's like, oh, oh okay. 
I guess it must exist. But like that's so biased. Like, who is he to tell you if the death stick is a real thing? I mean, come on. Like, really? He's he's a Ravenclaw. He's a re- world-renowned uh, researcher. Like, I, I would actually trust him, but he's not really scientific proof that this but is But he's really an thing. expert, and Hermione has always trusted the experts. Yeah, if yeah. anyone's going to know, it would be Ollivander. Uh, I suppose. So, but, but so like the, uh, I mentioned the paragraph being beautiful, but it's like now that Hermione had to admit that it was really yeah. a thing, she just kept talking about how dark it was and how, um, Harry made the right choice for not choosing it. And I thought that was really, really nice, but she is, she's kind of hard. It's hard for her to admit that yeah. she was wrong before. She doesn't do it incredibly gracefully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's like, well, if I was wrong, Okay, fine, it does exist, but it's evil, and we should warn it anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, Harry not acting, um, this is really, there's a line in here that really stands out to me of showing how mature Harry's becoming. Um, when it says he could never remember a time when he had chosen not to act. Yeah. Which, I love that line. I remember reading that line for the first time and just being like, whoa like that's true like uh, he learned his lesson he learned his lesson the hard way yeah was it that and i this is just playing devil's advocate here like because i i felt that the choice not to act was pretty much forced upon him i mean the speed with which voldemort was moving to the destination meant that they really would have had m- more than the usual odds stacked against them if they were to even try and race. Um, now, I agree with what Hermione says in this chapter. Harry couldn't have desecrated the tomb. Uh, so, like, there were certain barriers in place that I don't think Harry ever would have been able to cross. So it was certainly the smart decision. Yeah, but I'm not thinking... has Harry ever really done the smart decision? <laughs> I, I, I honestly think the odds were just too large to where if you value your own life and at this point Harry does um you just wouldn't but it's still even considering all that it's still such a stretch from the things that he used to do like I'm still thinking about Order of the Phoenix yeah and <laughs> the fact that he was like out. <laughs> he was like Sirius is in trouble I don't care what else we need to go to London right now like stop stop preventing me from going to London I'm gonna break into the ministry by myself like he's exactly. never he's never really stopped to be like, well, I can't really get there in time and I would then have to do this and this and that's not really logical. Like he's never done that before. Yeah, I I first thought of Chamber. Like odds were stacked against him, right? Huge massive snake and Ginny was probably <laughs> dead and so you know, but still he was like, Let's go, we're going. <laughs> yeah. So what do you guys think has spurred this change in Harry? I think we all agree that this is a big moment for him. But what do you think is I mean, I know what I think, but I want to hear what you guys think. <laughs> huh. I think losing Dobby. I think seeing that loss of something, someone so brave and so innocent was has takes a huge toll on Harry. Um, and makes him kind of rethink everything. I don't know if I see any one specific moment, but more just the whole progression of this book and how much he's been through already and... The people that he's like lost or um, had like conflict with, and the things that he's seen, I just feel like you can't experience all of that and not get to a point where you question yourself and you change. Mm-hmm. 
I think it's just Harry living up to the fact that he has just chosen Horcruxes over Hallows. Yeah. Um, he knew he needed to interview both of these guests while they were either still alive or still in one place. And I think his, his uh, decision to deal with that pressing matter meant that he couldn't go after the wand, but also the wand is a hallow and he's chosen Horcruxes. Yeah. I, I actually agree with you, Alice. And I think Dobby's death struck him in particularly. Um, but I think what it was about Dobby's death was that, you know, other deaths that Harry has had to endure, not all of them, but other ones, it's been a, a leadership figure or, you know, someone older than him, you know, a mentor per se. Um, and in this case, with Dobby's death, something so innocent, you know, in other cases, kind of Harry was the innocent that people were dying to protect or kind of gotten in the way. But in this case, with Dobby dying, it's almost like Harry is like, okay, well, it's not, it, it's not me anymore. I'm not the innocent that people are, are dying for. Dobby was the innocent. And because I'm not anymore, you know, what does that make me? That makes me the leader. I need to take charge. I need to be rational. I need to be logical with how I decide to move forward on this. And I, I think he's almost steps into Dumbledore's mindset. And he even says the, for the greater good in this chapter. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I really think that That's that shift is, is very apparent here and very mature. Of him. So maybe it's that he realizes now to everywhere he goes is to send to go anywhere is to send tr- troops into battle, like your friends into yeah. battle. Like he's he's realized that before, but now he's thinking strategically and is like, "No, somebody just died for me, and I'm not. I don't want that to happen two more times today." Yeah, and he's he's in control. He's not, you know, being moved by some other player, whether it be you know Dumbledore or whoever else. He's in charge, so he has to to step into that role, you know, sooner or later. He does. Well, I like now that he's just, he's left with, in the in the opening days of this chapter, to, like, contemplate the repercussions of his decision. Yeah. Like, he's still, he's still not, he's not ignoring what he just did. He just realizes that, well, it's happened, and now hell has broken loose. Like, Voldemort has the unbeatable wand. And I think Ron, to his credit, I know we were talking about him earlier, but he actually says, like, so what now? How how can he be defeated now? Yeah, if he's got this wand, and it's it's a good question. Yeah, yeah I like that he doesn't. He's not just like I made my decision and I'm sticking to it and let's move on. He does. I mean, maybe externally that's kind of how it looks, but he does question himself a lot and, and says that he can't even recreate the arguments that he had when he made the decision. Yeah, exactly. That they Very felt weak and not and incomplete. That yeah. was really nice. It's just interesting to, yeah. to see that change in him. Well, Eric brought up a little earlier about interviewing guests, which is actually kind of the biggest point that happens in here is uh, that they're making this plan to break into Gringotts, which brings up a lot of really interesting questions about wizard and goblin relations. Um, Mm -hmm. We kind of touched on this last week. Um, But Hermione says near the beginning that there's no historical evidence for... um, the the biggest thing it comes down to is the sword is kind of what brings this up. And Hermione says there's no historical evidence that it really should still belong to goblins, but she admits that wizards skate over things they do to other races. Um, whereas Ron kind of takes the other side um, and contends it's just kind of a goblin made up story um, and that goblins have fought dirty in the past, <laughs> which, which brings me to this question is this another case of Ron's kind of culturally ingrained insensitivity to other races? Um, maybe. 
I think that the goblins, it, like in that that phrase, "fighting dirty," like it's a perfect phrase to showcase what Ron has either uh, come to believe or has been brought up to believe. Like it could be in uh, a learned prejudice like that, but like "fighting dirty," like I think in terms of if we're all uh, sentient magical beings and we're at war, we're probably going to do what we have to do to survive. Um, so these excursions, and and you think like, oh. Um, or sorry, incursions. You you think of like shouldn't Harry have paid more attention in history of magic? Like this totally would have <laughs> let let some I think helped out a lot uh, towards understanding goblins because they rebelled either against the Ministry um, or against each other so many so many so many times. But um, I, I I think that with Ron and his prejudice, I I don't think it's necessarily unfounded i in the end to basically um the end of what he's saying is we have to be careful like you you probably can't trust this guy which is and and bill says it better bill knows them better um Mm -hmm. but ron has basically just learned that you should probably stay away from goblins which to be honest as far as ron is concerned if he hadn't become the best friend of harry potter and had to go to war and do all this other stuff like it's probably good advice to stay away from goblins yeah (laughs) There, there's so many interesting things. The, the reason I bring this up is because I, I noticed in this chapter, this whole idea really brings up some r- real moral ambiguity that we haven't really seen a lot in the series so far, but is going to kind of become a regular thing as we keep going um, about do ends justify means, um, almost even to how, how much can we rely on history? Um, I mean, he asks Hermione, how do we know the goblin version of history is right? And when Hermione asks him, does it make a difference? He says, it changes how I feel about it. <laughs> so there's, which I is so just like, wow, like that's true. Like, how do we know which version of history is right? Um, because what if the sword was really Gryffindor's? I mean, made for him. What if, I mean, his name is carved into the, into the sword. It's kind of in the craftsmanship. Um, there's no real clues that it should belong to goblins at all. So it kind of, it offers this very interesting gray area that isn't really resolved. Well, actually I, I did, I disagree because I do think that it is resolved. Like come, come build. Obviously it was unresolved enough, even by the end of this book to have JK Rowling herself address it because she did. She actually, Oh, did um, she? Oh yeah! Oh, I it's, missed it. It's one. so good. It's so good. Like I think it's on her Twitter. I could be wrong, but she basically ended up saying somebody asked her, and it's like, so what? Where did that really net out with the sword of Gryffindor? And her reply was that it was actually, um, all things considered, it was actually Godric Gryffindor's. I think she said probably. Oh, I must have missed but that. She 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 lent more credence to the Godric Gryffindor theory, but. Knowing what Bill says, I, I, I did feel that like it was um, answered enough to, you know, even if a goblin sells you their craftsmanship, this whole willing it to other people or having it transfer hands without further payment is the equivalent of stealing to them. As a race, that's just what they think. And so that really, to me, answers the question of whose is it? They feel if Godric Gryffindor isn't still alive... Uh, a human shouldn't be carrying it around the way that he did. It should be a goblin. Yeah. And Bill is a really good, like trustworthy um, 
voice of reason here, too, because he is a wizard, but he spent most of his adult life around goblins. Like, if you can't trust Bill about this, then there's really nobody else that you could listen to. But that, I feel like that still, though, causes some problems of which which side do you go on, you know? Um, do you go on the wizard side? Do you go on the goblin side? Trying to find the truth in between those two sides still becomes a problem. Yeah. Do you guys think Harry did the right thing here? Um, I, I think Harry absolutely made the best choice out of what was possible. Yeah. For him yeah. To do. yeah. Uh, yeah. He didn't have a whole lot of options. And I he mean, picked- he realizes this wasn't driven home necessarily. I mean, it's, it's not overtly stated in this chapter, but it's a choice between the Horcruxes or the only weapon they have to destroy the Horcruxes. Yeah. And to do so would, I mean, to basically make this deal with Griphook would be to give up your only weapon in exchange for your target. And it's no easy choice. It's no easy choice. Of course, you would want to, and I think that the right choice is to go for whatever's going to get you the target because, and I'm surprised he didn't call in Hermione, um, Professor Hermione, who's read the Horcrux (laughs) book. Like, what else can we do to destroy a Horcrux? They just have to, at this point, and I know it's like nearing the end of the school year, um, but they have <laughs> to just get their hands on these Horcruxes. They they have to, no matter what. They gotta start pulling some of these things together because Voldemort is not getting weaker, and that that should be the priority, regardless of I mean, losing the sword. It would be a tremendous blow. Yeah, um, and there's there's only like a set number of Horcruxes, whereas you can destroy them with. A small number of things, but it's a bigger but, number. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I agree. You could get he, another weapon. Yeah, I agree he, he made the best decision given his options. You know, I was laughing, um, Allison, at your note in there where Ron, where, um, I think it's Hermione, <laughs> says, we should just give him something else, something more valuable. And Ron's like, sure, I'll go get my other sword that I've got. Yeah. Yeah. Another fake sword, too. Yeah. Or goblin sword. Yeah, that was, that was hilarious, actually. That one, that's one of my yeah. favorite. Just, it's so... Sassy. Everyone always talks about Sassy Harry. I know, Sassy, Sassy Ron. Sassy Ron. <laughs> <laughs> but it, yeah, it made, he says you can gift wrap it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it. It made me. It made me wonder: Is there anything else they could have given? You know, when Hermione says, "We'll just have to give him something else." It's like, what is she even thinking of? I, I couldn't think of what possible other well, option. It's, it's, it's interesting um, to th- analyze grip hook, like the grip hook side of things, yeah. because he, he wants this sword. Harry yeah. notes, I think it's last chapter or the chapter before, like grip hook is holding on to it. And all that's said in the chapter, but it's said like five times, grip hook was still holding the sword. Yeah. Um, and that's mentioned so many times. Grip hook had his hand on the sword. Grip hook to- took the sword with him upstairs. It's like, he clearly lusts over this sword, and yeah. I don't think his motives are totally altruistic or totally, oh, it's for all goblins everywhere. He does, He's not saying, this. I'm, I'm making you this deal for this sword because all goblins should have it. He's saying, I want that sword. I like it's still it's it is personal gain on Griphook's part and it's going to be hard or next to impossible to to tr- like fault him to that like to his face but he is totally not um he he is totally being selfish too. I I wondered yeah. about that Eric and I actually I think I agree with you because I, and when he says that whole chapter where he says I reached or that paragraph by the way says I reached my decision you know I'm going to help you I put a note in the corner that just says why like what, what made him make yeah. that decision? And I think that you're spot on when you say it wasn't an altruistic thing. It was, I want that sword for myself. 
It's interesting to me that she paints the only goblin that we've ever really gotten a good look at as such an unsympathetic character. I'm I'm yeah. sure that not all goblins are like that, but it I mean, I know it's it's for the story, but mm. but it's just interesting. Well, I kind of like that he's great because yes, everything we just said is not very very altruistic and blah blah blah, and they go on in the chapter to talk about, you know, how they didn't really like working with him because he talked about like, how, <laughs> oh, maybe we'll get to hurt some wizards and like, oh, yeah. it'll be violent. And obviously we're not really meant to like this guy, but at the end of the day, he's helping them and they need him. So as the reader, you're really kind of torn going back to moral ambiguity. You know, do we like this guy? Probably not, but we need him. So he's very, you know, essential. So we kind of have to put up with him. It just, <laughs> it, it adds an interesting dynamic, you know, not a black yeah. and white character. Yeah. You know, there's there's a line in the, there's a line in the text that Bill says when he's talking about how goblins are just a different species altogether. He's yeah. like, you have to look at this from a perspective of this guy's not human. He won't think and feel like you or I do. Yeah, that's and true. And that's like fundamentally true. And so I think what it is too, we're talking about him as if he were a human by saying, oh, he's he's unsavory or this <laughs> that the other thing. But actually, he's probably it's just that he's different. It yeah. really just is yeah. that he's different, and this is the extent to which it's kind of a microcosm of how the greater wizard-goblin relations can or have existed. There will never be full trust or full understanding. They're just too different. And so they forge this alliance, but of course it's an uneasy alliance, but it's going to be productive. It's going to get Harry what he needs, and it's going to you know, pan out, but ultimately they're not, you know, they don't have to necessarily like each other. And and it's probably a metaphor for all sorts of other things. But I, I think, was just going to ask, is there any parallels yeah. in our real life for this situation? I, uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, I, mean, I, just, I it, feel like it, it goes to the, like, just different cultural ideals. I mean, it almost feels like the first thing that popped in my head was like Western culture versus Eastern culture, you know, where they think and they sure. view things as so different that sometimes it's hard to try and see the other side and try and um, try and understand that other perspective when That's a great you example. just think you're right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I, and I think it's interesting that I, I just realized that this feels like one of the first times this kind of issue really is coming up in this book um, or in this series. It's so late, but it's going to become so prevalent as they go on. I mean, Harry has to start casting unforgivable curses in the next chapter to try and get to the ends they need to get to. And so it's this very interesting, very mature, difficult subject that she brings up to kind yeah. of start playing with. I love it. <laughs> I, I do like it more that we're like contextualizing it here and going, okay, but wait, what's about to happen? I liked it a lot. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, our next point is it's a little smaller one, but Kind of still on the same path of Harry growing up very, very quickly, um, suddenly in this chapter. There's a lot of, of guilt he feels um, as, as he goes through this chapter. Um, he feels guilty about all the Weasleys being stuck at anti-murals. Um, <laughs> he, he, he should feel guilty for that. He probably yeah. should, yeah. <laughs> um, he he feels so guilty when he's talking to Fleur. Um about all of them just kind of crashing and taking over her whole space. Um, which I thought was interesting that it's, it's Fleur that he goes to, to apologize for that. Yeah. What do you guys think? I, I mean, I, I agree. I, uh, 
I'm trying to like reconcile because Floor is is so good at what what she's doing in this chapter. She's running the household. She's taking care of things, and like she's also this badass champion warrior. But like she thanks him for saving her sister, and Harry gets stuck because he yeah. is kind of. And this answers a question we asked long ago in book four about whether or not Gabrielle was in any danger. Truly, because it's very ambiguous. Yeah. But according, according to book seven, Harry says, no, she wasn't in any danger to himself. But, <laughs> you know, whether or not that's true, like, it's... Floor doesn't have to put up with this. She is a badass. She is capable of kicking them out if they're causing her trouble. But she realizes the importance in housing these people and going along with Harry's wishes. And Bill and Floor both put up and shut up in this in yeah. this chapter. They're, they're like, yeah. we're just not... I'd be like, you're imposing on us, but we're going to deal with it because this is what's necessary. And Harry, so far as I can recall, never asked. They just showed up, and this is what they're doing. And so Bill and Floor are both tremendously awesome characters. And I I think Harry doesn't feel almost guilty enough for, like, how much he's imposing. But they are both just very interested in, like, they are making this happen. They're showing very strong... Weasley, that strong, hearty Weasley character, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, which I think right. is fantastic to have that back. And for how little we've seen Bill in previous books, like he totally is a Weasley coming through mm-hmm. for like this chapter and Floor is a Weasley coming through. This might be a little bit off topic and irrelevant, but I was thinking about how she was chosen as a Triwizard Champion, and at the time, everybody was like, oh, she's kind of, like, weak, and she keeps losing all the tests. (laughs) (laughs) But she's got this moral fiber that comes out later, and I wonder if that was part of why she was chosen. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I definitely think that's part of the choosing process. Yeah, I love that the goblet kind of saw that in her before everybody else, and I was like, oh, that girl. She's so annoying. And even all the Bobatons, like, rolled their eyes when she was picked. Oh, I don't you know? remember that, but I do remember that she wasn't very good. <laughs> or successful. I should say successful. Right. And I, I don't think that JKR would make her lose the first couple tasks simply because she's the female. No. Like, I no, don't see that being the reason. No. Yeah, absolutely not. So she might not be as physically able, but she's morally very strong. Her mental constitution is very up there. Did she yes. lose the first one? I know she lost the first one. Dragons. The dragons. I think she does okay. I mean, Cedric's head caught on fire, so I feel like he probably (laughs) was a loser in that situation. One would think. (laughs) I can't remember. I just remembered her just kind of being unimpressive. I think think that was a sacrifice of having to get it between Harry and Cedric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Ultimately, if there's four and you've got to make two ahead, the other two are going to look bad. Yeah, right. So how, though, does this kind of change in how Harry's seeing things. How does that affect what he does in the future? His, his like, his guilt? Yeah, like his kind of guilt and his starting to realize what's going on outside of him and his little personal... That that guilt, I think that plays a huge part in his actions later on. I mean, fast forwarding to the end with that walk into the forest, as soon as he figures out, you know, what his ultimate destiny is, there's no... I don't want to say there's no hesitation because obviously no one's going to like go sprinting headlong into that seat, but it's it's not a question for him. He's watched enough people give up enough things for him that when he has the chance to return the favor, it's like, yeah, of course, absolutely. 
that I'm going to do this. I've, I've found Harry's guilt in the past to be so restrictive or prohibitive. Like he tends to not let people go and do things because he wants to do it all himself because he'll feel too guilty if they die. But like, this is the first time where other people actually get to do stuff. Bill and Floor are actively tending to these, um, the wounded, you know, and he's letting that happen. Yeah. He's not doing it himself. And like moving forward to Hogwarts, you're going to get scenes like where Neville, um, slays the snake because it's just one of those things that needs doing and Harry can't be the one to always do all of it. So I I think that maybe his guilt is he's managing it in a way that is going to allow him to feel more on top of it. But at the same time, he's letting go a little bit, a lot of that control. Yeah. I see that. Yeah. I agree. And kind of speaking of these, these outside things that are happening in the war, like we said, this is kind of, it's a nice moment that we kind of get to see how everyone's doing. Um, we've been so focused on the trio for about half this book. So we kind of get to see everyone else. Um, and something that really struck me was we get such a kind of funny scene with Luna and her just kind of like serene peacefulness, even through here. And I mean, Ollivander says that she was such a comfort. Um, <laughs> he means kook, but you know, <laughs> he's being nice but, about it. But I, but I wonder, um, just thinking of what Luna went through, I feel like this is a moment that all of a sudden you can't, you can't see how Luna is the way she is as her being ignorant or naive, but you're, you're definitely seeing her choosing to be this person. So Allison, I'm actually, yeah. I'm gonna let you ask your question, but I just want <laughs> I need to, I need to ask a question myself and maybe Megan, you'll be the perfect person to answer this. As Luna comes back into the house, she's describing some creature. Little tiny ears, a bit like a hippo's, purple and hairy. You have to hum. They prefer a walk. What is she talking about? Is that uh, a fantastic scene? Oh, God. What is yeah. that? It's the crumple horn snorkax because then she starts oh, talking about the horn. Okay, I wasn't sure if they if those were related. Like, it was an erumpent horn, and Luna's like, no, <laughs> no, no, it definitely wasn't. Oh, you're That's right. My favorite you're right. Movie. She <laughs> does say, if you ever come over, I'll show you the horn. Okay. I missed that part, and I'm looking at it, I'm like, what on earth is she describing? Oh, sure. I didn't know if it was two different creatures she was talking about. It could be all over the place. She could be talking about five creatures. Yeah, you know, you never know. That's great. I will say, I think the MVP of this chapter is, uh, and it even beats out Lupin, is Dean for, for just... <laughs> For keeping Luna company all of this time, That's they're there true. for weeks, and she's like walking around telling him about creatures that probably don't exist. The description oh. is that Dean is looking uncomfortable. He just looks uncomfortable. <laughs> he's like, Dean is mesmerized. He's like, Dean I've is, been quite Dean enough is for this not thing. paying attention. No, I think that I think that they describe his expression as alarmed. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what Harry says. It says, it says Get me out of here. Yeah, looking uncomfortable. Dean shrugged at Harry as he passed. He okay. has so bitten great. the bullet. He's he's, <laughs> he's, he's bearing down on, on on this. Bless Dean. I just like, I just pictured Alfie Enoch and Ivana Lynch doing this scene. And, oh man! Oh, yeah, well, I, mean, I was Dean this is not is in just, the movie. Dean is good people. That's yeah. what it comes down to. Yeah. And he's going to entertain Luna. Like he knows Luna, of course. They're they've been in the DA together by now, and he he knows her. But he's he's just kind of. Allowing her to muse. And and you're right, like back to the point of Luna and how much of a, a refreshing and welcome, you know, her personality type is like amid this war, she's still just kind of choosing to be so not aloof, not not by any stretch of the imagination, but like hopeful, peaceful, not let down, not brought down. Yeah. Yeah, she's serene. Serene. 
Um, also, we kind of see Fleur's concern. Um, they talk about when Bill's gone that she just kind of keeps checking the window. So we're mm-hmm. kind of seeing again that that idea of the worry over family, the worry over the people you care about the most um, at, at all points. Um, and with Bill coming back, we get a little bit of an update on the Weasleys, on the rest of the Weasley hey. clan, which is nice. <laughs> Um, and one of my favorite things is that Fred and George are still running Weasley's Wizard Wheezes yes. from Alabar out of the window. Back room. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, it hit me this time that they're they're actually they're doing the very thing Harry told them to do when he gave them the startup money. That mm-hmm. they're providing laughs when they're desperately needed. Yeah. And that, that's just like a beautiful little moment to add in there that to know that once again, the Weasleys are good people and they're just gonna, they're going to do good things throughout here. Alice, and I love these points of the, you know, all these outside effects of war and everything that's going on outside of our little world with the trio where we've been so isolated. Cause I think it's really important for Harry to have that perspective of what kind of impact this is having on the outside world. Um, yeah, and not to not to cross fandoms here, but Eric, I know you'll appreciate this. This is why I like the fourth book in Game of Thrones so much, A Feast for Crows, because it, it it is. I feel like the focus of that book is on the outside effects of war, and it, it lends so much perspective um, to the series. And I think that's what Harry is getting a little bit in this chapter. I'm like a third of the way through that book. I would already agree with you. So I won't give awesome. anything away, but. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I, I honestly think that the greater world also could have just lost its hero, right? I mean, Harry yeah. and Hermione and Ron came so close to being destroyed um, in the previous in the previous chapter, and I think that that too, like thinking about the wider wizarding world, I'm just like they all need to say their prayers and like exhale deeply because that almost they almost just lost their only shot. Yeah. So precarious. Yeah. And then kind of with the running theme of how the trio has changed, um, we see how on edge they are when Lupin comes to the door, um, which is kind of juxtaposed with what happened when he showed up the last time. Right. I mean, or even when they were at the borough before when they were in this kind of home setting but now, because they've been on the run for so long, they're all kind of on edge. They all whip out their wands. They all are freaking out a little bit um, because someone's there that they yeah. weren't expecting. He doesn't. He doesn't make it easier too. And he's like, "You told me to come if there was an emergency." Yeah. <laughs> then oh he goes God. through all the security steps and is verified. Then he's like, <sighs> "It's a boy." <laughs> it's like, oh my God! But like, he still used the word emergency, and I was yeah. thinking. Oh no, what's going on? He's trying to freak them out. I remember being yeah. so nervous the first time I read this. Like, my, I felt my heart pounding. It's like, oh god, oh god, what is it now? And that just makes the relief of good news just even better. Yeah. I think that's exactly it. And, like, as interested as I am by um, Lupin in this chapter, and I want more with him, like, there isn't a, a private scene between he and no. Harry where they, where no. they sort of talk. And, and I, it's glossed over for probably more than one good reason. Um, you know, basically, because, I mean, this is meant to be relief. This is the last time we see Lupin alive, I think. Suspense. Oh, that's sad. That's really sad. Oh, no. I just realized that. 
it is stated uh, that like the events uh, of following Lupin's departure or of Lupin's departure last time might have never happened. Yeah. Based on the relationship between them now, like Lupin asks Harry to be his his godfather. Obviously, that is super important in tying with. The basically making Teddy an orphan by the end of the book oh, on JKR's part. We Thanks, haven't even announced. JKR. We haven't even announced. Teddy! Teddy's here! <laughs> Teddy has been born! This is our last point. We just kind of segued right in. I just realized that. Sorry. But yes. <laughs> oh, I thought we were there. No, we were, but we hadn't like said. We didn't officially and then Teddy say is it. born and then got oh, on from well, there. This is the okay, this is the this is the fifth point of the of the chapter discussion that we're talking about. Now, Teddy. <laughs> Um, Lupin, though, like, he, he asks Harry to be the godfather, but it's not a private conversation, and no. everybody hears it, and everybody cheers him on. That's great. It's a family moment. But there still isn't this, um, understanding between them, and I, I really wonder, because based on what the relationship was between Harry and Lupin in book three, I really expected more talking between those characters in their life. I yeah. always want more Harry Lupin. Definitely. Yeah. Like, this, again, would be a good opportunity. It's, now, it's not his moment to shine, granted. Bill has a lot of experience with goblins. That is the topic at hand that needs discussing. That's fair. But, like, Lupin just shows up in such these, like, peppered places where he can't be fully utilized to be Harry's, like, best next best choice of guardian or parent. But by this point... Harry's lost so many guardians of parents. Right. So. That's yeah. such like a tragic theme in his life yeah. that it just kind of makes sense because he lost his parents before he could ever talk to them. He lost Sirius when he really had never gotten the time to spend with Sirius that he was promised um, that they would like live together or whatever. And now Lupin too. I mean, it just right down the line. Can I just point out that when, <laughs> when Lupin shows up, like before he says it and everyone's tense and pointing their wands, it says, grip hook slipped beneath the table out of sight. And all I can hear <laughs> yeah. is like, you know when little kids are like really pouty and they like sling <laughs> off their chair? Like that's what I pictured and I literally highlighted it and wrote ha in the margin because I just, <laughs> the visual of him like sliding off this chair as everyone else is like tense and holding their wands and he just you, I am glad that you brought that up because the characterization of Griphook, I know we talked about it at length uh, moments ago, earlier in the episode, but like he was taking dinners in his room even though his leg had healed up, and then apparently Bill, or sorry, Floor threw a fit, and Bill said, no, this isn't going to work you gotta out. you got to come like, downstairs. You have to come and eat with us. And even though he doesn't eat the same thing, and it is go, it, it, she goes into detail about what he actually eats. It's like fungus and raw meat. Um, but like... <laughs> He is still uh, a concentrated presence there. And to be fair, even though he's under the table, he stays for a real long time during Lupin's visit, too. Yeah, I mean, he um, does, they does say that eventually he you know, creeps off. But I just thought that He was creeps hilarious. off, but it's like after the third yeah, glass, yeah. goblet is refilled, which is cool. It's like, so I, I, I actually am interested just in general in like the uh, grip hook obviously isn't contributing to the conversation in a major way. Otherwise, he would have more dialogue than just to comment on the tiara when the tiara is in the room. That's all he says. Like, the I don't even know. He's downstairs. Does he but he's still there, and I think there is something about hospitality or rules of hospitality. Now I'm thinking of Game of Thrones again. <laughs> um, but, like, that goblins must understand to a point because he is... Yeah. Beca- he's being a... Not productive. He's being a participant. Yeah. You know, it's like if you if you're in this roof, if you're under this roof, if you're in this home, 
you cannot be, you cannot sideline yourself all the time. Yeah. And whatever Bill says to get through to him works. And he still is here. He could not care less about Teddy Lupin and like the interaction of these people. I'm sure he's bored to tears as evidenced by him slunking under the table, but he's still there. Yeah. Give him some. Small yeah. props, definitely. Small, <laughs> non-human sized props. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, God. So much hate mail. <laughs> well, the, la- the last point for this episode, then, of this chapter is actually the last line of this chapter. Ooh. Where Bill, Harry has just been talking to Bill. Um, and he says that maybe, maybe he's a little drunk, (laughs) but he thinks to himself, he seemed set on course to become just as reckless a godfather to Teddy Lupin as Sirius Black had been to him. Is this a valid thought? Hmm. Uh, I mean, yes and no. What Harry's about to do is very reckless. I think Harry has a little bit of a track record of being reckless, though. Not as bad as Sirius a little bit yeah i i think it's it's very interesting perspective like it totally i would agree now that harry has grown up because he has this perspective of man what will my godson think of me (laughs) you know 10 years down the line harry has all of a sudden this concept that there will be a future 10 years from now when he's older and some kids looking up to him that's that's profound actually yeah Um, but yeah i don't know i don't know if it's fair necessarily because i just i always think of Sirius so fondly as being like the most reckless crazy guy um <laughs> call me motorcycle Padfoot. yeah, yeah. Mo- like flying motorcycle <laughs> you know that says it all and harry does love the broomsticks but you know i i just think that he could never come i'm like oh harry wishes he were serious one day yeah just as i was thinking about this and i i wonder what you guys think of what the kind of conclusion i came to was that, like we were saying, Sirius's recklessness really kind of comes out of that's just who he is as a character. Um, and sometimes he even goes above that because he's desperate. <laughs> um, for example, breaking into the Gryffindor Tower, like things like this, <laughs> where Harry's recklessness to me seems more like it comes out of necessity. It comes out of when Harry feels like he has no other option except for to do the crazy thing. But I would draw yeah. a parallel between those. I mean, Sirius's desperation and Harry's necessity. You know, Sirius breaking into the or breaking into the tower. Harry breaking into Umbridge's office. She's the flu that word. You know, there's mm, there's parallels point. there. Yeah, yeah, there are. Um, I mean, I think th- I'm trying to remember. Like, I'm trying to figure out the role of a Godfather in general in the Wizarding World, anyway, because I can't imagine that they're Catholic. Yeah, um, that's a good point. Like in general, and it's like it's just basically like guardian if the parents die, right? So yeah, yeah. and yeah, I mm. feel like godparents are a very British just culture thing. I mean, someone correct me if I'm wrong. This is why we need Rosie, but mm. I feel like it's just a very British thing to, like you said, have someone in case something happens to the parents to have another adult to be a good influence on the kid kind of look up to yeah i think i don't know about um uk but here i think it, it is there's that element to it but i think godfather godmother they carry that connotation of you know a religious aspect yeah. to it i don't know if that's the case you know i think too that like 
Remus um, must have thought that Harry would survive this battle. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. oh, that's a that's, good that's, point. That's the ultimate vote of confidence. That's like, true. you're not about to go die on me, are you, Harry? Because I would have asked uh, Ginny then, um, or, or or somebody. You know, like he. That's that's a good show of faith on Remus's part. I've never thought that's of that. Really good point. I, I never thought, thought of that either. <laughs> Oh, now I'm upset again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this chapter moves us in so many different ways. <laughs> like the waves of the ocean crashing up against the cliff. Oh, great. Great job. The ebb and flow like a beast <sighs> breathing. I love writing. <laughs> so beautiful. Well, with that then, I guess we will leave Harry to his thoughts of Sirius and end our chapter. But... We won't end it completely because now we go on to the podcast question of the week. So, uh, here it is. It is centered on Bill Weasley, uh, who is a good guy portrayed by a really good actor, um, who I can't stop watching in movies. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the podcast question of the week this week is In this chapter, Bill Weasley correctly guesses that the trio have made a deal with Griphook and cautions Harry heavily to be careful. In light of Bill's excellent advice, should Harry be re-examining the plan that he has formed? Should he have entrusted Bill with the plan thus far and sought his unique perspective for an alternative? Or is Harry motivated by the desire to keep Bill and his family safe and resolved to accept the dangers that lay ahead? Um, really interested in hearing uh, what everyone, all of our listeners, think about this. So head on over to the Alohomora main page at alohomora.mugglenet.com and click on Podcast Question of the Week for episode 176 to uh, get the discussions going. And uh, all that really remains is for us to thank Meredith for joining us. Thank you so much, Meredith, for chiming in today. Oh, this has been, my birthday is tomorrow, so this is like an early oh, birthday present. Birthday. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, so exciting. This is an early present for me, an absolute, absolute treat. Thank you, thank you very much for thinking of Another me. Another year gone. <laughs> <laughs> and we also want to thank Megan for stepping in today, too. Thank you so much for filling yeah. in for us. Absolutely. And oh, everyone go listen to Speak Beastie right now. Yes. You're done. Yes. I'm gonna do it. <laughs> yes, click on the. Hopefully, you've all uh, your listeners have. Uh, hopefully, listeners have lived up to our expectations, and we're downloading all the episodes of Speak Beastie during the listening to this podcast. Yeah, that would have been really efficient. <laughs> that would really efficient super, way to do and it. And now you can start right when it ends. Is that weird? Um, if I admit what, that I definitely did that as soon as you said it at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> See, yes. this is be- more people should be like Meredith. <laughs> Um, you should so, be hearing me talk constantly. There's <laughs> <laughs> no time. better way to spend my time. <laughs> so if you would like to be on the show like Meredith, there are still a few opportunities before we wrap Deathly Hallows. And as we mentioned, we do have a game plan for afterwards. But in the meantime, the surest way to be on our show is to uh, be with us during Deathly Hallows. And uh, in order to find out how to do that, uh, visit the Be On The Show page at alohomora.mugglenet.com. Um, no fancy equipment is needed. You do need uh, some headphones and mic, but that could be uh, Apple headphones or any number of other things. So go check it out. Uh, there's a process, a helpful rubric or document to help you out, and that's all on our website. And if you want to check us out on social media, there are a lot of ways to stay in touch. You can follow us on Twitter at AlohomoraMN 
uh, on Facebook, you can like our page at facebook.com slash open the Dumbledore. On Tumblr, we are MN Alohomora Podcast. And on Instagram, we are Alohomora MN. Our website is alohomora.muggledet.com, where you can download a free ringtone. Or um, you can send an owl to audioboom at alohomora.muggledet.com, which is free. But we appreciate if you keep your messages under 60 seconds. Yes. Uh, and check out our store. Um, we sell stuff <laughs> has become the new slogan to a little more store. Um, but actually there's a lot of stuff, uh, many, many catchphrase ridden or laden, uh, baggies and, uh, jandals and all sorts of stuff. So go check that out. Uh, also on our website, the Alohomora store and proceeds of course, uh, help support us to continue to create the show and pay for the hosting bill and any number of other things. So we appreciate it. Um, if you want to get some Alohomora merch. And make sure you check out our smartphone app. You can download it for free. Just search Podcast Source in your phone's app store, and there's all sorts of awesome things on there. We were talking earlier about the videos that Kat and Kristen and I made at Universal Studios Orlando, um, which were really fun, and we're excited to share them with you guys. I have a feeling we'll be getting one of those for this episode. Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, really excited. Everything down there looked just like amazing, oh, amazing fun. I could go on for hours. Yeah. Well, everybody, we want to thank you for listening. Uh, I'm Eric Skull. I'm Megan Kelly. And I'm Allison Sigurd. Thank you for listening to episode 176 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore. Yeah. I gotta admit, when I got that email today asking to be on the show, my I checked my phone while I was at my desk, and my boss happened to be walking by my desk, like to ask me a question exactly when I opened the email. So I had this look on my face, like complete shock and excitement. And she, she's standing there, and you know, I look up at her, and I'm like, "Yes," and she's like, "What's wrong?" And I was like, I couldn't even process it at that moment. I was like, "You, um, I'm not even sure. It's good." But what do you need first while I process that? So it was really funny. Super funny. She's like, you're too happy. This clearly isn't work related. Yeah. She's like, um, is everything okay? I was like, everything is fabulous. Huh. That is funny. That is good.